many of you all know uh, part of my testimony at least. <clears throat> and there was a time when I claimed to be a Christian, uh, but I don't think I really was. I claimed to love a holy God distinct from everything else around him, uh, but unfortunately I looked a lot like the world. So I was really deeply challenged by one retreat speaker at, when I was 14 years old as he opened up the retreat that we went to. He was preaching from Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, he opened up the retreat saying, or quoting a Snoop Dogg song. If you don't know who Snoop Dogg is, he's a rapper. And I think, I don't know what the song was, um, but what I knew is that I could follow every single word that he was quoting. I knew it all. And I grew up in the church. And I said, what is this irrelevant, balding, old Chinese man, which it really is my future. Uh, <laughs> balding, old Chinese man. What does he know about Snoop Dogg? What does he know about the world? This guy's irrelevant. And soon enough, he moved the retreat to where, where, where he was going. And he basically said, from the verse, verses of the Bible in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind, really all because of the gospel. And in that moment, I knew that I was not distinct from the world, like God had called me to do, like God had called the church to be. And so I repented. I knew I looked much more like the world than the Lord I claimed to love. In this morning's passage in Genesis chapter 30 verse 25 to Genesis chapter 31 verse 55. Here we see God building his people. Even here at this point in time it is a person. He's eventually going to build his people and use them to be distinct in the world. To be separate. To be holy. To be set apart for his name and for his use. And we see here exactly how he does that with a man named Jacob. Jacob is a patriarch a father of the faith, a father of all those who would have faith, just like Isaac was before him, his father, and just like Abraham was before him, his grandfather. And if you're joining us for the first time, you join us for the series in the book of Genesis, which deals with origins. And the book of Genesis can be broken up into two parts, basically the history of everything leading up to the patriarchs, the origins of everything leading up to the patriarchs, and then the origins of God's people, as we looked at... Abraham, as God sets his love upon this pagan man, a person who did not worship God, and all by his grace he draws him out and is using him to establish a people for his glory. He gives Abraham a promise, or promises, that he will have many people come from him, that he's going to inherit the land of Canaan, a land of promise, and that one from his line eventually would come to be a blessing to all of the nations. All by his grace, God sets his love upon him. And we see in Genesis, God fulfills his word as a faithful God. From Abraham to Isaac, he passes on those promises there. And then he eventually passes on the promises to the man of our subject, the subject of our sermon, that is Jacob. <clears throat> he is making a people for himself and he is bringing them into his designated place. And he is teaching them to live under his rule. Now these people here, the people of uh, God are in their infancy stage. And Jacob, for some strange reason, is out of the land that God had promised him. But by God's grace, God is going to work to bring him back 
to the land and bring his promises to fruition. And so that's exactly what we see in our passage today. Fourteen years earlier, from this passage that we see, or from this story, uh, Jacob had fled the promised land in an effort to secure his own survival. His brother, Esau, had threatened to kill him. So there he's concerned with personal survival. And he's also concerned with the survival of his line, right? I mean, what, what kind of, what, what does the promise mean when God says, I'm going to make a whole people come from you, if he's not even married? So he's concerned with the survival of his line. In order to have children, you need to have a wife. And he flees and finds some degree of safety in his own uncle's house for the time being. And by God's grace, God provides him with a family, certainly, yes, a dysfunctional family. God is indeed working with sinners, but a family nevertheless. And here God is readying him, finally, 14 years later, after he had initially fled, God is readying him to go back to the land of promise. That's the big picture story of what's going on here. God is faithful. He is sovereign, working out everything for his people's good and his glory. But there's a subplot here that we focus on as well. This is Jacob's rite of passage. Abraham certainly had his own rite of passage, as he too was a man made into a patriarch. And here we see Jacob's. Just as God is taking care of big picture issues, so God is turning Jacob into a patriarch. Genesis chapter 30, verse 25. This is found on page 24 of the Bibles right in front of you, if you're using those. Our first point that we want to look at is the making of a man of character. The making of a man of character. Particularly here, we focus on honesty. Truth and honesty, you know, these are very important aspects to the very godness of God, the, the goodness of God. So anyone who's going to be a leader of God's people ought to be marked by these things that God himself is marked by and that God himself defines. Interestingly, you know, for Jacob, he's in trouble because he's known to be a cheat and a liar. His very dishonesty is what jettisoned him out of the promised land. He straight up lied to his father, deceived his brother, he showed that he was very comfortable walking in the very ways of Satan and he chose to reject the ways of God, that is, the ways of truthfulness, the ways of faithfulness. Satan, by the way, is known as the father of lies. And he tricks Eve, right, in the very beginning. And he tears apart the relationship that they had with God, with one another. And we see that there in the early chapters of Genesis. God, on the other hand, is known as the God of truth. Christ himself says, I am the truth. So Jacob, the patriarch, we're, we're, out, we're supposed to wonder, why exactly is this man, our very own father in the faith, walking in the ways of Satan? And we are reminded, thank God, that he saved sinners. God was moving him from dishonesty to honesty. And he does so by letting him experience the consequences of his very own sin. And we looked at this a couple weeks ago. And he experiences really the consequences of his sin for 14 years. The things that he learns there, where God tells him that his brother, the older brother, will serve the younger. Here, Jacob has to learn that he has to serve in order before he is served. There is a pecking order as well, and Jacob learns to respect birth order. Jacob, the younger brother, chicks his older brother out of his birthright. 
and he is tricked, uh, or he is taught to learn how to respect birth order by his uncle Laban switches the woman that he loves for the woman that he doesn't love, and there tricks him into marrying him, marrying the wrong daughter. Jacob's also taught to learn about the dangers of deceit. Jacob himself is the trickster, but yet he gets out-tricked by his very own uncle for 14 years. It seems that 14 years living with a fellow trickster has taught him the value of honesty and truthfulness, all by the grace of God. So here in Genesis chapter 30, Jacob is a different man, largely. Let's look at verses 25 to 26 of chapter 30. I'll go ahead and read those. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. So again, just to catch you up on background, what happens is that 14 years ago, he goes and he desires to marry this woman, and he says, okay, for your wife, you know, he's basically having to set up his own marriage. And to his uncle, he says, okay, I will serve you for seven years for your daughter. At that point in time, he, he thinks he's marrying Rachel, but Laban, his uncle, switches Rachel for Leah. Unfortunately, he gets infuriated and says, okay, I will continue to serve you for yet for your other daughter, Rachel. And he ends up marrying two wives. Certainly different and goes against the original creation order as God made marriage to be for one man and one woman. Again, God here is using a sinful man. But 14 years later, two wives later, 11 sons later, and one daughter later, Jacob wants to return home. Now, of course, Laban, his father-in-law, you know, I think he's wanting Jacob to stick around and work some more. He sees Jacob, and all he sees are, are dollar signs there in verse 31. He says, oh, but look, what shall your wages be? And really what that means is he wants him to stick around longer. You know, there goes Laban again, tricking Jacob. And that same question, what shall your wages be? That's what got him into this whole trouble of 14 years earlier. And you see here in this passage the difference between the godly man of Jacob and this ungodly man, Laban. He is a greedy man. He sees Jacob as a means to the end of his own prosperity. Look there in 27. It said, I learned by divination that the Lord blessed me through you. You know, that's why he wants Jacob to stick around. I get rich because you're with me, so please stick around. And Laban is also not only seen as a greedy man, he's also seen as a foolish man. I mean... Here, why is it that he has to learn by divination or he goes to his gods to learn that he's prospering when all around him he sees that his flock is growing with Jacob's help? Why does he need to go to the gods to see very so, so clearly that Jacob is helping, helping him? But nevertheless, he wants him to stick around. Jacob equals cash. With Jacob he is blessed. But Jacob, all again, by God's grace, is a bit wiser. 14 years later, look at 31. He, that is Laban, says, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep, 
and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Now here, this is actually a masterful solution by Jacob. Earlier, his uncle had tricked Jacob again by switching the woman he loved for Leah, and he did so without anyone noticing, apparently. So now, knowing the ways of Laban, Jacob comes up with a solution that is verifiable to everybody that sees. If there's any deception at all, it'll be public. So Jacob says, okay, let me walk through your flock and take all the spotted and speckled lambs and goats, every black lamb, they shall be my wages. I'm not dealing anymore with wives here. And according to scholars, they say that this is probably about 15 to 20% of the flock here. But the point here is, um, the point or the reason why Jacob wants his wages to be so verifiable in the eye of public is there in 33. I want all these things to be done this way so that, so, the result is, my honesty will answer for me later. If I'm going to deceive, let it be known that I am a deceiver. If I'm going to be honest, let everyone see my honesty. Again, this is a very different man if you were with us earlier on in Jacob, with Jacob in front of his father Isaac. His, his father is going blind, he knows that the blessing is going to go towards the older son, and so Jacob disguises himself like Winnie the Pooh, uh, wearing rabbit's costume, walking in. Oh, really, I am your older son. Everybody knows how, what a ridiculous situation this is, particularly God. That was 14 years earlier, and here he stands a different man. My honesty will answer for me later, and I tell you all this. Who would have thought that Jacob would even be concerned about honesty given his public lies, his acts of deceit, tricking everybody around him, and all by the grace of God he stands there a different person. You know, if you're a Christian, this is your story. You realize this? I wonder what sin marked your life just five years ago. Ten years ago. What sin marked your life then? You go back 20 years ago. What sin marked your life then? Now I, I know that you guys probably, some of you don't want to think about it or even talk about it. Because there's so much pain and guilt associated with what your life looked like 20 years ago. But it, this is a good thing to think about. If you are a Christian, God has already justified you. If you are really a Christian, God has already forgiven you. So you can look back to 20 years ago and say, my goodness, my life was marked by drunkenness. My life was marked by sexual immorality. My life was marked by deceit. My life was mar marked by gossiping and hating other people. My life was marked by cheating and lying. But thank God he has justified you. He has forgiven you. And he promises that he will keep you. So ask yourself, what sin characterized your life many years ago? And think and remember, how gripped were you by that sin? And then now fast forward to today and ask yourself this question. Uh, what are my feelings towards that sin now? If your life was marked by sexual immorality, what are your feelings towards those things now? Lying and deception? 
How about now? Cheating. Thank God that most of us will be able to testify that our lives are indeed different. My life was ch- categorized, uh, characterized by cheating and lying. All these, many of these things here. And thank God I can stand here today and say, while I may still struggle and be tempted towards these things, my life is not characterized by these things. Instead, actually, if anybody were, were to look at me 20 years ago to now, they would say, indeed, without a doubt, your life is characterized by very different things. You are a man who desires to follow the ways of God. And again, all this by God's grace. And probably this is your testimony too. Now, if you find that your Christian life is marked by the sin of your non-Christian life, well, we need to talk. You may have simply a, a sensitive conscience if you feel the same type of guilt. Let's say you stumble now once a month, whereas before you would have stumbled 30 times a month. You might feel that same sensitive, uh, you might have a sensitive conscience there, feeling that same guilt. But then if you are stumbling and sinning in the exact same ways that you were when you were a non-Christian, Paul says there is legitimate reason to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. God desires that his people be distinct. He desires that all of his people not only be marked by morality, but be marked by God's morality. Because he is the God who changes us, and he is a God here of honesty and truth. And he calls his own people to be people of honesty and truth. If you're having these issues, I encourage you to come talk to me, come talk to Jeremy, the other pastor, come talk to your friend who brought you here to help you examine your life to see if you are living according to the ways of Jesus. Thinking back to Jacob, imagine how hard it would have been to commit to living in honesty towards uh, Laban the deceiver. Many of us know how difficult it is to work with a boss or a family member who persistently lies to you. You know, the way that that you do business, the way that you relate to that person, it changes because of, of who they are. And we end up dealing with a conniver, a plotter, a deceiver, where you know that every conversation is calculated. You are left to sift and filter through possible truths or possible lies. Not only that, though, you're left to psychoanalyze all of their actions. Everything is a chess game, and we know that this can be incredibly frustrating. But if you find yourself in that situation, Jacob here is an example to you. Jacob here, he's able to commit to honesty, even in dealing with an unjust man, because he trusts in honesty. And then we have to ask, well, why is it that he trusts in this honesty? It's really because he trusts in God. Again, this is a God-given morality, a virtue. And God is going to vindicate his own name as his character, his characteristic of honesty, will vindicate Jacob's work. Jacob says, look, accusations may come against me. People may uh, suspect me, but my honesty will answer for me. My honesty answered in my work my faithfulness. They will be my expert testimony to my character. It's amazing here how God changes this man so drastically. And there is a lot that Jacob lets ride on honesty, isn't there? He has such great hope and confidence, willing to suffer loss. 
You know, he, here he's going to pastor the flock. He ends up pastoring the flock for an additional six years. That means he works for an unjust master for 20 years. And he, he lays all of this stuff on honesty. That is what is going to vindicate his name. If you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, do you ever wonder where honesty comes from? Do you ever wonder why you appreciate it so much? Why is it that we need as a society this stalwart characteristic? I mean, our daily lives represent the fact, they hold, hold forward the fact that we need it and indeed we love it. Think about retirement funds. Would you ever entrust your life savings to Bernie Madoff? Assuming you have that much life savings to begin with, to even get in business with him. You know, he's found guilty of ripping people off of $17 billion. Would you ever say, yeah, you, 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 you can do wisely with my money here, take it. Think about going on vacation where you need to fly a plane or someone needs to fly a plane. Isn't it great that Boeing engineers write airline manuals that truthfully explain how to fly an airplane. You ever appreciate that? Think about, think about family. If you had a choice, would you rather choose to have a guardian or parents or grandparents, whoever's taking care of you, um, would you rather have parents or family members uh, where, who dealt in the currency of deception, where lying and deception was seen as okay, or would you rather choose a family who fights for honesty? Yes, we all lie to some degree. We all shade the truth to some degree. But would you rather have a family who lies or a family who fights for honesty and truthfulness towards other people? I'm guessing you're going to say, give me the honest family. There's so much to be appreciated here about family. And the next, and the next time you appreciate honesty and truth, remember where truth is found. These very characteristics in their fullness are found in God. The Bible says that there is no fickleness with God, as in he doesn't change his mind and, and do one thing and lie to you and then go on and do another thing. The Bible says that there is no deception from God. The Bible says that God is utterly apart from sinners in these ways, and he does not change his mind, and he doesn't change like shifting shadows, as we saw last week from the book of James. And the fact that we even appreciate honesty at all. Doesn't that reveal the fact that we have been made in God's very image, in his very likeness, designed to appreciate God himself? The reality is, is we don't appreciate it as we ought. It's because we've all sinned. We've all gone the way of ourselves. We've all believed in the lie of autonomous living. That we can indeed make decisions on our own and do so in, a such, in such a way where we can actually determine good. Now, we certainly can make decisions on our own. That's not my point here. The point here is that we cannot make decisions in such a way where we can be determining our own good. It's because we're dependent people, as we see very soon. We are dependent upon God, our very creator and maker. Back to the story. Jacob the patriarch makes this beautiful pledge of honesty, right? We, we can appreciate here is character. So let's see how Laban responds there in verse 34. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. So right there, right, right there at the end of 34, we think, Oh, great, fantastic. 
We think Laban has agreed here. Maybe he's given up his trickster ways. But we see there in 35, but that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So simple thinking on Laban. Jacob can't get any spotted and speckled sheep or lambs from my flock if I don't have any. So I'm going to go through my flock and I'm going to take them and I'm going to give them to my sons. And they're going to be three days behind me. So what's Jacob going to do? He can't go through his flock and pasture them and uh, receive them as their reward because there are none. Now we assume Jacob anticipated such conniving from Laban. I mean, Jacob was the one who pastured Laban's flock. One day there's a whole bunch of spotted and speckled and the next day there aren't any. Laban here, again, is seen as just a fool, and his dishonesty is going to be his expert witness. Um, Verses 37 to 43, they tell the story of how Jacob pastures the flock, and how against all odds, the speckled and spotted uh, spotted sheep and goats grow in number. I'm just going to go ahead and read this. Now, those of you who might be familiar with this, or who are new to the story, might recognize that this is a very interesting story. Uh, but I'll read it and explain it afterwards. Verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks of the troughs in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Um, now again, if you're, if you're new to the story, this might seem like it's a bit strange. Is Jacob practicing some sort of voodoo magic or something? But again, the story reminds us that God uh, uses this man who is in process. God is, is making this man into a patriarch who would be a leader. Just like Abraham who came out of paganism. So it seems natural to assume that Jacob too is, is clinging to some practice in the pagan world. Laban doesn't have any more spotted and speckled. So what Jacob does is he tries to make the sheep and the goats produce spotted and speckled. Keep in mind, right, he doesn't have genetic engineering. He cannot go out and clone a sheep. So he does what he knows best to do. He takes sticks, according to the tradition back then. Uh, if, a, if someone of the flock, let's say, you know, a flock or a goat, were to see visually a certain pattern uh, while they're breeding, uh, that pattern would be emblazoned on the embryo. And that seems to be what's going on here. So he takes these sticks, puts these patterns in them. Whenever the strong would breed, he puts them up. Whenever the weak is there, he doesn't put them up. And by, all by... Uh, Some sort of process here, he ends up gaining a number of sheep. I mean, look there in verse 43, God speaks about his prosperity. 
Thus, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, camels and dogs. He's prospering in every sort of way. Keep in mind here, he pastured the flock for six years. And there is no thievery, by the way. There is, this is, there's just honesty here while he may be doing certain things with sticks. I mean, verse 26, I mean, you see here what's uplifted in uh, Jacob's work ethic there. Look there in verse 26. The emphasis there is that he has served him. You know the service that I have given you. It's undeniable. He's an honest man now of character. In verse 28, again, it mentions here his faithful service. And God is moving Jacob, a man marked by dishonesty, towards a patriarch, a man of God who represents God. He's turning him into an honest man. That's point number one. Going from dishonesty to honesty. The making of a patriarch, that is the making of a man of character. Point number two is the making of a dependent man. The making of a dependent man. Now for a country who loves its independence and for people who love our individualism, the fact that God is making him, Jacob, a dependent man might not seem so attractive. But the Bible shows that anyone who lives such individualistic lives where they reject dependence upon God, their maker, that person is actually not living the way that they were designed to live. The lure of autonomy has been there from the beginning in Adam and Eve as they wanted to do as they pleased, as we mentioned earlier. Rejecting God as king and stealing his crown to either give to somebody else or to put it on their very own heads. And in so doing, they earn for themselves just judgment. And they set themselves against God the King. But the Bible says that we are to live in dependence upon God our Creator, dependent upon God for salvation. And God is teach, as God is teaching Jacob honesty, He's also teaching him dependence. Remember Jacob's conditional response to God's unconditional promises? God draws near to this man who is wandering in the desert and and he promises him by his grace all of these blessings. I'll take you, make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a people. Someone from your line is going to bless the nations. And those are unconditional promises. And Jacob responds like this. If God will be with me, if, if he will be with me and will keep me in the way that I should go and will give me the bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Now, 20 years later, Jacob seems to get it. There are no conditions here. Just an acknowledgement that God is God and that he does what he promises. This is seen in verses 1 to 16 of chapter 31. In this section here, um, Jacob has fallen out of Laban's confidence. Look there in verse 1. Now, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. So where Jacob used to see him as dollar signs, now he is a threat to Laban. And Laban and his entire family are described as given to this illogical thinking. I mean, Laban's sons say there, look again, Jacob has taken (coughs) what was our father's. And gained all his wealth. I mean, that's completely untrue. Jacob's work was marked by honesty, but it is Laban who's given to dishonesty, and his sons lack the ability to see clearly. Look at verses 2 to 5 and see Jacob's response. 
And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. Interesting contrast, isn't it, as God is teaching him dependence. You see what he's saying here? Whatever hopes he has for a kind and loving and caring father-in-law, maybe Jared is thinking about these things. Those were dashed upon the rock of the wedding night 20 years earlier. I'm not saying that it will be for you, brother. (laughs) But here Jacob says, that is okay. How does he get to the point where he he has all these hopes possibly in this father-in-law, and then he's able to say, but the God of my father has been with me. 20 years of deception. He's able to say, but the God of my father has been with me, and it's okay because he is with me. Doesn't need to be dependent on anybody else, not Laban, but God. I see that your father does not regard me with favor anymore, but the God of my father has been with me. How many of us would love to have that kind of awareness that God is present with us when working with unjust bosses, when dealing with loved ones that aren't entirely honest and fearless once again? How many of us would love this kind of dependence that is able to look six years of work in the eye and say, my God's character will vindicate my name. My God will vindicate me. Of course, we often want this, but when we realize that God often develops this type of dependence through the many years of working, all of a sudden we say, we don't want it, we're definitely not. But that's exactly how God is growing Jacob's dependence. It's through trials. Look there, verses 6 and 7. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. Imagine that here. The average time that he changes his wages is every two years. He works for two years, Laban changes his wages. He works another two years, Laban changes his wages again. It's amazing that in the gauntlet of his father-in-law's trickery, deception, oppression, God was teaching Jacob that God alone is his faithful father. What was it that God did? Look there, verse 7. Here, Jacob knows that he is protected. It was Yahweh who did not permit Laban to harm me. He's able to look at 20 years of difficulty and say, God permitted Laban or did not permit him to, to harm me. If Laban said in his deceit, the spotted and speckled shall be your wages, the spotted and speckled sheep bore more. If Laban said the striped shall be your wages, then that flock bore the striped. Here he's learning more about this God, isn't he? Interesting, he still calls him the God of my father. He's not quite saying my God, my Lord. It seems to be that he's learning about the God of his father's. But yet God is sovereign through it all. Verse 9, it is God who has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Furthermore, God himself draws near to Jacob in this dream in verses 11 to 12. 
And he says, by God's grace in his divine word, look at what I have done, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. What a reminder. It's so encouraging how God works in these types of ways with the patriarchs. He brings Jacob to the stars and says, look and behold all of the stars. Look at what I have done. Look at what I will do. And so he brings him to the flock here. Who knows how many sheep there are. He says, look at the flocks and remember that I am God. Now get up and go. I will bring you back. Jacob's dependence upon God encourages Rachel and Leah. Look there in 14 to 16. Now here, where the sisters were battling each other before, now they are agreed upon what God is doing and what Jacob should do. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion of our of or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said, you do. And as the story plays out, it really draws out this distinction between Laban and his sons and Jacob and his family. Verses 17 to 42 tell the story of how Jacob secretly leaves and then how Laban goes in hot pursuit after him. And the threats are not over yet, but Jacob, siding with honesty and gaining strength and dependence upon God, makes it through this test as Laban, the dishonest pagan man, pursues him. Uh, Look at 17 to 21. I'll go ahead and read there. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all the livestock, all his property that had that had gained uh, the livestock in his possessions that he had acquired in Padanaram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods and Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. It's interesting here again how this... <clears throat> contrast is drawn between Jacob and Laban. It's interesting that in their departure, look there at uh, 19, Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Now there that just points to the fact, that's going to point to the fact that Jacob is an honest man. But there Rachel steals his gods, the very ones that he relies upon. And then in the next verse, uh, verse 20, it says Jacob tricked or stole the heart of or stole the mind of Laban the Aramean. So you're left thinking like Laban is kind of floundering. He has no more gods. And he has no more mind and heart to be rooted in reality here. And we see how this plays out there. Laban finally catches up to him and then confronts him. Look there in 26. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? So, I mean, this is like, he, here, he's just throwing unfounded accusations. Uh, the passage reads as if Laban's deceit has caught up with him, though. And he is self-deceived. This is a sob story. What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters? But legally, they're not his daughters anymore. They're Jacob's wives. And he says there, too, that he is driven away like captives. But it was not Jacob that drove them away. Based on the evidence, it was Laban who treated them like foreigners. It was Laban who left no inheritance to them. It was Laban who drove them away. And now they're very happy to follow Jacob, the man of God. Verse 27 says, Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me 
so that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs and tambourine and lyre. So you get the picture that Laban is saying, why didn't you wait for yet another party? But what person with their right mind is going to entrust themselves to Laban to throw a party for them? He's delusional because the last time that uh, Jacob had a party, it didn't go so well. (laughs) Now verse 28, there is actually probably a legit accusation. Why did you not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? This, of course, is a kiss of blessing, passing on the inheritance if he chose to do so. Um, Now we know that there is nothing left, but still that is a legitimate right. Look there in 29. We see what happens when he catches up to what he says. It is in my power to do you harm. That is because he's more established, he has more people. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? This is a funny statement in an even funnier situation or scene overall. Here's Laban losing his mind, relying on false accusations. And oops, the gods are lost. Now with Jacob, you have Yahweh who is sovereign over all, building his people, establishing his kingdom prospering Jacob and sending him back to the land of promise. And so Jacob answers there in 31, Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. This passage, these passages really uplift Jacob's guiltlessness. There's no wrongdoing. He's not doing this by force. He did not know that Rachel had stolen uh, her father's gods. Why she would have stolen them is might be because it's related to some sort of pagan worship. She too might be still clinging to things of the past. Or it could be associated with inheritance rights, like if you have the gods, then you have the things that the gods bless the person with. Maybe they were really worth something, silver or gold or something like that. But continuing on there in 33, So Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them, that is the gods. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of the woman, that is she's having her period, is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. This is honesty here. That's what it's uplifting here. Jacob is not in the wrong, but Laban is in the Now, in Jacob's response to Laban, we see these themes of honesty, character, and dependence upon a sovereign God drawn together. Look there in 36 and 37. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, and uh, that they may decide between us two. So here he's saying if God, or he is faithful to work, right? He's faithful to Laban. He's faithful in character. Contrast that with Laban. He's the one who was changing the wages, known for trickery. But Jacob is a steady man. He's also dependent upon God. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. 
So here he's saying, not if God, then I will do. He said, if God had not, then I would be done for here. He is a dependent man upon God, confident in God's very character and confident of the characteristics that God himself is instilling in him. So God is, a, is doing these things as he's making his, this patriarch, turning him into a man of character, an honest man, making him into a dependent man upon his creator, the sovereign one over all. But he's also setting him apart. Point number three, the making of a man set apart. Of course, we shouldn't conclude that Jacob was set apart or respected in and of himself. Jacob deserves no commendation uh, because he is who he is, but because God, by his grace, was using him. Now realize Laban knows that Jacob is unique, right? He experiences blessings because he's with him. Um, so imagine that 20 years Laban took Jacob in, who had nothing, into his home. But now Jacob has so much that Laban feels threatened. 20 years ago, Laban agreed to give him his daughter uh, so that they could start a family. And 20 years later, Jacob has a very large family. And so it's pretty incredible that Jacob goes from nothing to something, all by the grace of God, and with the reason that God was building a kingdom upon him. And Jacob and Laban knows this. All of a sudden, here, God's man is a display of God's faithfulness, of his testimony, of his blessing. And, and he's able to show it before all of the people. Set it before me. Let my honesty, my God's very character of honesty, morality, and truth testify to me today. And Laban knows it. The way verses 44 to 40, uh, 54 read is that there is this distinction drawn again between Laban and the man of God, the follower of Yahweh. I'll go ahead and read 44 to 55, 54. <clears throat> then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness before you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jeger Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid. And Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the, the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do me harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. I don't know if you caught all the pears there, but this goes to draw a distinction between those two men. The treaty process, or this non-aggression covenant, uh, goes in pairs. There's two names for the stone heaps. There are two meals, one before and one after. It's, it, the treaty is established. There are two treaty provisions. 
the protection of daughters and the tribal boundaries. There's even two supposed gods to oversee the treaty. You have Yahweh, the God of Jacob, and then you have the God of Nahor, or the gods of Nahor. Laban sees him now as separate, independent, and of equal status. No longer dependent upon him, but a man of his own, dependent upon God. He is supposed to be respected because God is with him. And the nation, recognizing this, uh, or Laban representing the pagan nations, are to recognize that this is a man of God distinct from them. You know, it is always in God's intention that God's people be distinct. Whether dealing with Abraham, whether dealing with Isaac, Jacob, Old Testament Israel, New Testament church. Those who believe in Jesus, who is distinct from the world, are to follow in his train. I mean, in the gospel, you see this distinctness. We have Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners. A God who is absolutely distinct from sinners, he enters into this world. And the people he saves are to be distinct as well. This is why Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. Where we once rejected him or walking in deceit and trickery and deception, just like Laban. Following what the world tells us. Living according to our own autonomy. Choosing our own ways. God saves us from our very own sin. Which is why you can look back 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago and recognize that your life is different and it's supposed to be. We are indeed supposed to look more like God, the God we say we love, and less and less like the world. That is his plan, the plan of redemption history, salvation history. God intends that his people be distinct. This is, again, why he saves us from our sins. And if you know yourself to be walking in the ways of the world, God says, look, you can indeed be saved and forgiven of your sin if you would turn and repent and believe. That you would stop living in the ways of the world and recognize that there are good things with this God who has created us. The God who defines honesty and morality. These very things that we all appreciate, we can know in person as we look to Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, who bare the wrath that we deserved, and then who was raised from the dead on the third day, proving to all that his payment was sufficient. This is distinction here. God is drawing his people away from the world as we are a light in this dark place. You know, in many ways, the church today will have the opportunity to stand distinct from others. As, you, as many of you know, the Supreme Court just handed down their ruling on Friday, which legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states of America. Now, this certainly will have effects on families and children and society at large. It will even have effects, to some degree, on democracy that this country was founded upon and knows. But the good thing, as we seek to remain distinct, is that there is no reason to panic. There is no reason to lose hope. The reason is because the Lord is king and God is still with us. And friends, what better climate for the church to be distinct than in one where the church has to swim against the stream? You realize that the vast majority of Christians today are under governments that oppress them? Does this government, does this country uh, that we live in today, do we have such freedom where we can gather publicly Without any fear, at least for now, the foreseeable future, uh, without fear of being thrown into jail? 
We can gather here and talk about the gospel freely. And we can indeed remain distinct as we hold fast to God's truth, as we hold fast to the gospel that saves, the fact that sinners are saved by grace, and we can do so as we speak the truth in love. Remember that the church flourishes always when it is distinct from the culture. As Greg Gilbert said, light is never more conspicuous and inviting than when it shines in the deepest darkness. Praise God that nothing changes just because our culture might define something or seek to redefine what God has already defined when the culture seeks to set its face against God whose word is true. Nothing has changed. This is not the first time that this country has had a government that is only partially just, as one has said. So how amazing is it here that Jacob is our example? How awesome is it that we have this example of men who is certainly known for dishonesty and conniving and trickery, and now, 20 years later, God has worked in his life in such a way where he says, honesty, God's characteristic, and my God whom I depend on will vindicate my name. And he's able to say that looking down into the decades for him, most immediately, the last six years of his life there as he served underneath Laban. But he was doing that to make his people distinct. As we come to the end of this section, we know that this immediate aspect of him finding a family or this problem has already been taken care of. But yet we are keenly aware that there is yet another issue, one that relates to his own physical survival. As he heads back to his hometown, there awaits a brother wanting to kill him. And we look at that section next week. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do indeed thank you for your grace and your mercies. We thank you that you are a God who changes people. Because we know that if change were up to us, we wouldn't get very far. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you give us your very own spirit. That you move in our hearts. You take out our stony hearts and you put us put in hearts of flesh. That we might desire to walk in your ways. Father, we pray that we would be distinct just as Jacob was distinct. How awesome is it that you used Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to be a testimony to the nations around us around them. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use us, First Baptist Church, and all evangelical churches who preach your gospel to be distinct from the world. But, Lord, we pray that we would not be angry against the culture, that we would not be hostile, lest we would be marked once again by the ways of Satan. But, Lord, we pray that we would speak the truth in love, that we would be calm, but yet we would speak with great conviction. Father, we pray that we would follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who suffered unjustly. And Lord, we think of many, the many, many Christians, your people, who have followed in the footsteps of faith, as we know from Hebrews 11, and have been persecuted for their faith. But Lord, we thank you for the freedom of religion that we have today, and that same freedom of religion that we pray for. We are mindful, Lord, too, of all the other Christians around the world who are suffering deep persecution. We thank you, Lord, that even some of their own persecutors uh, who are against them and have killed them are converting and are believing by your grace in the gospel that saves and forgives them. 
Lord, we pray that as the church suffers around the world, Lord, we pray that you would use them to be a fantastic display of your glory as they trust in your characteristics, as they trust and are dependent upon you, and as they display your marvelous glory. Lord, we pray that they would be, uh, that they, they would know a great revival in the lands that they live in. And we pray the same for us as well. In your name we pray. Amen.